I am Bo. I'm happy to be with you again today. And I recently, after years of <clears throat> mocking this object of saying, who in the world would ever buy one of those? Who is so lazy that they would need a Roomba? Bought one. I bought one. I just decided it was time. We have a really big dog that sheds a lot and I was tired of it. So <clears throat> got a Roomba and I am not that person that just goes off willy-nilly trying to run something. I read the instruction manual. I'm a researcher and I love that. So I sit down and I read it and I try to figure it out. And it has a really pretty clear instruction manual, but it doesn't tell you everything. I mean, it tells you what to do when there are three beeps and a red light and four beeps and a green light and all of those things. But it doesn't tell you what to do. Like if company's coming in 10 minutes and you're cooking spaghetti and you want to get the house clean, it doesn't help you with that. It just gives you some kind of general troubleshooting on the machine. And so I, it, it also doesn't actually vacuum my house. Having the instruction manual has never once gotten my house clean. It's never done it. My husband will come down and be like, did, did you vacuum today? No, but I believe in the Roomba. I believe in the power of the Roomba if I ever turn it on. So there's a, there's a, there's a belief system. There's an instruction manual to our faith. And then there's an operating system. And the belief system is a lot more fun. It's a lot more fun to like... We know what to say and we know what to believe. And then the operating system is like, how's that working for you in your office? How's it working in your marriage? How's it working out in the streets? So we've been in Romans now for a while. And the first 11 chapters are belief system. Instruction, 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 doctrine. This is who Jesus is and why he came. And it is beautiful. It's a masterpiece of doctrinal soundness. But in chapter 12... Paul turns a corner with his pen. And two weeks ago, Brad start, launched us out on the first verse of, 12, of Romans 12. And it says, therefore, why? Therefore, because of all this that Jesus has done, because we understand what we believe and who we believe in, because of all this, now do this. Now we're going to put this to work in our lives. Now we're going to put it to work on our streets and in our church and in our families. We're going to put it to work. And then it says right after that, so present your bodies a living sacrifice. And I, I kind of think it's Paul's little warning sign. It's like when I'm driving to Bend, there's always this point where I get on the pass usually about this time of year where the digital sign comes up and says, carry traction devices, icy roads ahead. And I'm like, shoot, oh shoot, it's about to get icy. It's about to get squirrely. It's gonna be hard to steer my car and keep it right down the middle of the lane. That's what Paul is warning you about. He's saying, you know what? It, it, what I'm about to tell you is about to get kind of hard. And that's also what Bill Brady is, is warning you about right now. It might get a little bit tricky this morning, but it's gonna be good. Because the thing is, there are no promises in Romans for a life of ease. There are no promises in Romans that you get to live a life that is obsessed with self and be okay. But there are all kinds of promises that choosing this life, choosing to operate according to the belief system, will be eternally rewarding. It will be good. So let's launch. Love must be sincere. This is Romans 12, 9. 
Love must be sincere. That's just a barn burner of a sentence. You know, (laughs) we could just camp on that. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. So, sincere love. Remember years ago when computers first came out and there was SimCity? You could build a pretend city and be the boss of it. And then you could build a pretend restaurant and be the boss of that. And then you could be a pretend war hero and a pretend pilot and a pretend football player. We have created a million ways to pretend to be good at something. We've created a million ways to kind of scratch the itch that we have to do good things. But these things are not sincere and neither are the rewards that come from them. The money that we win playing a game is not spendable cash anywhere. Because it's not real. And so Jesus says clearly to us throughout his whole ministry, your love must be real. It doesn't have to be perfect, but it's got to be real. We need to have real, genuine, sincere love. We are really prone in America to hyperbolic love. I love this smoothie. This burger is changing my life. It's just so easy to say. We're just prone to all kinds of ways to kind of puff each other up and make things good. But then our love must be sincere. Do we really feel it? It, It's just easy to spew baloney. It really is. It's just easy to talk a good game and never really get our, our, our feet, our boots in the trenches of real love. And you may think, I don't really know how to, to, to love real. Think back to the last time you can think of someone loving you in a real way, in a way that you knew was genuine. Love like that. Love like that. Then Paul tells them to keep their core values straight. He says, love what is good, uh, cling to what is good, and hate what is evil. This is just Paul saying, you need to know what your list is. You need to know. You, there are things you love, and there are things you hate, and you need to keep the core values in the right order, in the right position, and you need to feed those core values. This is what, when people say, I mean, my family comes first, and then they get to retirement age and realize they have no relationship with their kids because they spent their whole life feeding the core value of wealth management. Ladder up against the wrong wall. Paul's saying, don't do that. Keep your core values straight. Hate what is evil. Hate what distracts you from the good things you're supposed to do, and cling to what is good. And then he says, never be lacking in zeal. And when I read this, when I was studying this, I was like, "Uh uh-oh, shoot. (laughs) This one really got me because this last three years has made me tired. I'm just going to be real. It's made me really tired. I've been tired of fighting and tired of theological gymnastics that are going on in the capital C church right now. I feel myself sometimes just on the border of jaded, a little bit cynical. And that does not sound very zealous, does it? The cry of my heart over the past few months has changed. It used to be, God, fix your world or take us out of here. (laughs) It's just super faith-filled. Fix your church. Fix your world. And now the cry of my heart every single day is restoring me a passion and a belief that you are restoring all things. You are are in this. You are at work. Because here's what I've discovered in my very advanced years. I have discovered that people who lose their spiritual fervor will pick it up for something else. And the fervor we pick up for something else is usually kind of stupid. 
is usually some kind of dumb thing that we want to stake our flag in and say, I'm willing to die for this now because I've lost the belief that Jesus can restore all things. So instead, I'd rather build up bigger villains and fight them than believe that we truly do have a hero and he is at work in our world. And so I don't want to become the person that just gets cynical and critical and that old lady on the rock, you know, like those two old guys in the Muppet show sitting in the balcony, like, did you think the show was good? Yeah, it's good. It's over. That kind of thing. I don't want to be that. (laughs) I don't want to lose my vision for the good, the true, and the beautiful. And we can easily replace that for a zeal with judging and criticizing instead, and it makes us bitter and ineffective. I told you, some icy roads, y'all. Some icy roads. So keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. That would be a lot easier to do if it weren't for who? People. It would be so much easier to serve the Lord if all of you weren't involved in it too. I mean, bless you, but it just is easier to have my own opinions all the time. It's easier to serve him with the good ideas that I have and never have anyone coming up against those. People make it hard sometimes to serve the Lord, and that's what this passage is going to help us tackle. How do we stay in love with Jesus and his church and his world when his church and his world are so filled with humans? Difficult, demanding, fallen, mistaken humans. And that's what he's about to tell us. And hold on to your hats and keep the first verse in mind. Offer your bodies a living sacrifice. In order for this to work, we're going to have to die to a little something. And then let's continue. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Eugene Peterson's translation says, be willing to make friends with nobodies. Um, Do not be conceited. So Paul often writes in triplets. It's, It's kind of standard of his. In fact, I love, Paul does this really preacher trick of saying, one thing I'm gonna do, and then he says three things. Press on toward the prize, forget what lies behind. (laughs) It's just like a preacher. But he does here talk a lot in triplets. And in this one, he says, be joyful in hope, be patient in affliction, be faithful in prayer. These three things. And these three things are all the product of work that is being done exclusively internally. This is internal work. And so I'm just going to right off the top say, unless you're willing to do the internal work, you're going to have to be extra careful with how you handle external conflict. The way we handle external conflict is going to land a, a lot on whether or not we're willing to cultivate inside a spirit of peace. So it says, be joyful. In hope. Notice that in this passage, he also says, weep with those who weep. So this is not Paul suggesting uh, emotional suppression. This is not him saying you always just have to be happy, happy, happy. This is not that. This is Paul saying, understand that in every circumstance you find yourself, there is the option of inviting in joyful hope. There's always the option because the thing is joy and grief are not mutually exclusive emotions. They can dance together pretty well. And so when we find ourselves soaked in sorrow, it's this 
It's this heart that has always got an attentive spirit to the whiff of joy in the air. Where might I spot some joy? Doesn't cancel out my pain, doesn't have to absolve, dissolve everything. It just comes in and it awakens my heart to hope that I wouldn't see if I just was sunk in the hole of grief and sorrow. So always be intentional. And then it says, be patient in affliction and faithful in prayer. These three things are the internal setup for the external actions that he's going to talk about next. They are the fuel that moves us toward doing these things, these very hard things. And this is where we're going to camp for the rest of our time together. And this is really important ground. I'd say it's maybe some of the most important ground we're on as a church in the year 2022 in, I've lost even the year, in America. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, this is Paul doubling down, tripling down. Not just I don't, don't take revenge. He also says if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So I want to focus for a minute on the center of that passage. It says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. The word peace in this passage is actually a Greek word that's only used one time in the New Testament, not used anywhere else. And so I think we can assume from that that Paul chose this intentionally. And, and the word here means to keep the peace or to live peacefully. So this is the definition of the peace that lives right here in the middle of this passage in Romans. It means to keep the peace or to live peacefully. But most of the time, when peace is mentioned in the New Testament, it's this word instead. The next word on peace means prosperity, peace, quietness, rest, health, welfare, to join. When all essential parts are joined together, this word literally is the word that was used for when you would tie a rope together, two ends of a rope together to make a longer rope. This word is bigger. It's more robust. It sounds a lot like shalom, yeah? This is the word in the Greek for shalom, and it has this very complete wholeness to it. It's different than what Paul was asking for in the verse before. In fact, this, this word for peace shows up in scriptures like this one. Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. In fact, Almost every time Jesus heals someone in the Gospels, he says this exact word and uses this exact word for peace. He says, go in wholeness, go in completeness. The broken parts have come together and made you whole and now you can be prosperous and now you can function and now you can be successful. So let's go back real quick to our Romans text. If it is possible, as far as depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. You can even hear in Paul's surrounding language this idea that this is a different kind of peace. If you can, as much as you can control, 
live at peace. He's using this kind of economy version, stripped down version of the word peace. He's not asking that every relationship results in shalom. He's not saying there's a way you can live that will make everyone live in harmony with you. He's not saying the end of your rope is going to be tied to the end of every other rope. He's not saying that. He's saying as much as you can, shh, live at peace. Live, put down your weapons. Put down your words. Go your own way if you need to, but live in peace as much as you can. Because we're dealing with two kinds of peace here, but many kinds of enemies. We have many kinds of adversaries. With some enemies, the only, com- the only option is going to be the economy stripped down version of the word. Just lay down your weapons and move on. Agree to disagree. Agree to ignore. Living in agreement is hard. And Paul is not suggesting it's a requirement for us with everyone. Amos 3 says, can two people walk together unless they're agreed? And if you read the whole chapter, the resounding answer is nope. Can't do it. And so we're not asked to walk together with everyone. In fact, imagine if you show up at your company picnic and they're going to have an old-fashioned three-legged race and the prize is $5 million. I don't know what company you work for, but are you taking applications? <laughs> but So you get tied to somebody and the gun is going to go off and then you realize the two of you have different finish lines. There's a different place to go. And what would happen in about two seconds? War. Like you're going for the $5 million and you can't do it if you're tied to someone who has a different finish line in mind. And we have to be intentional in relationships so that we know, uh, am I going the same direction? Can I agree at all on an end result here? And if we can't, the words of Paul say untie and walk away. Untie and pursue the finish line you think you're called to. Can I go where the other person is going and still live the way I believe God has called me to live? Am I being hurt inside of this relationship? What would it take to make peace? How would I make shalom happen if it was even possible? Would I take a risk on someone else's idea? Do I need to change my mind on something? Do I need to lay down my right to be right? Or would doing those things compromise who I am? These are all really important nuances inside the scripture as much as possible, make peace with all men. But whether you stay and fight or go in peace, Paul says our response to our adversaries should always be the same, always. He says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. The word enemy means adversary. And while there are two kinds of peace, as I mentioned, there are two many kinds of enemies. There are those who are fundamentally opposed to our success. They are fundamentally against us. They are going for an entirely different finish line. And then there are people who don't hate us, who maybe actually love us, but they can become enemies in a situation. In fact, they may even be married to us and they can become enemies. Like in a hot second, you can go from harmony to hatred because we become situational enemies, adversaries on opposite side of the fence, people tied together running in even just a degree different directions 
Even just, even just going toward the different doors in this sanctuary, we couldn't get there if we were tied together going for different doors, even as close as they are together. And so with these adversaries, in the, the ones where shalom is not possible, they're abject enemies, they're fundamentally opposed to your success, they're fundamentally opposed to your uh, failure. As much as possible... As much as it depends on you, lay down your weapons and move on with your life. Don't seek revenge. Leave room for God to work. He's on it. He's got this. And he loves them as much as he loves you. And that kind of sucks, but there it is. He loves them as much as he loves you. And so he's better at keeping the end in mind when he works with us. James says, does the wrath of man achieve the righteousness of God? Nope. And so every time we step in with our own measure of revenge, whatever that looks like, whether it's just conceived in our mind or executed through our hands, every time we have the power to shut out the work of God, which would bring maybe restoration or maybe just a better revenge than you could have thought of on your own. I don't know. But we need to leave room for God to work. Our wrath does not ever achieve the righteousness of God. It doesn't. We weren't built for it. We, we were not built to be the ones that make sure everyone gets the punishment that's owed them. We were the ones who were built for shalom. And so when shalom is not possible, we make peace. We don't seek revenge. Then it goes far, farther to say, in fact, you should give him food if he's hungry and water if he's thirsty. In other words, don't withhold compassion when it's in your power to give it. Don't withhold if you've got something good to give, you should give it, even if the person is your enemy. And it's hard. I, I remember watching someone on Facebook that I fundamentally disagree with in a lot of ways. They love Jesus, and they, they're, we're going to share eternity together, but I'm okay to wait until then. And um, <laughs> so I was watching some of the things they post, and they posted something that was just kind of innocuous, like a picture of their grandkid or something. And I did not want to click like. I, I did not want to click like it because I, I'm opposed to them on other things. And I was like, oh my word, what have I become? I mean, clicking like on social media is literally the least you can do. <laughs> and I wasn't going to do it. And that is not, I mean, my like doesn't mean anything to that person. It doesn't even matter. What matters is what's happening inside of me. What matters is I become the person who's hoarding my stupid social media likes. That's gross. So as much as in your power to give, give it. And then with the adversaries that aren't necessarily against us, they love us. It's a different story. So on the scale of enemies from mortal enemy to Thanksgiving dinner political opponent, where do we find ourselves? What do we do? How do we make peace, as much peace as possible? I will tell you, I don't have this all figured out. Um, and Paul's instructions are a compass, not a map. I was emailing with Steve Mitchell this week trying to get some theological help on this passage because it's a hard one. And he said something great. He said, this passage is guardrails. It, it's at, Paul isn't actually trying to tell us what to do in every situation. Paul is not trying to tell us how to vacuum the house while we're making spaghetti with company coming in 10 minutes. Paul is leaving a lot of room for us to have to have relationship with the Holy Spirit. 
Paul is making sure that he is not the compass. And listen, even in this moment, the word of God is not even the full compass. It is the guardrails. The rest is up to us and our relationship with Jesus. And I think that is why Paul said first, be faithful in prayer. Because you're not going to be able to pull off this kind of advanced Christianity without it. This is going to be hard. You're going to be that girl sitting at your computer keeping her Facebook likes to herself. He gives us guardrails so we know when we're veering horribly off course. But our goal is to be right in the center lane of God's love. We want to be right in the middle. And that might look differently in your situation, in the conflict that you face, than it does for me in the conflicts that I face. So I don't have all the answers, but I do have four questions that I think are good for you to ask yourself and one action for every single person. The first question is, what is my goal? Peace or shalom? What do I want? In my relationship with my beloved, with my husband, um, shalom is always the goal, always. Always the goal. And so when we end up disagreeing on something, when we become adversaries on an issue, I have to ask myself, really, is this the $5 million finish line that I think I'm headed for? Really? Do I really, does, does where we eat dinner, really, is that going to amount in something that's really a big win for me? And if I get my way at the expense of peace, have I won anything anyway? It's a little motto of mine. The only thing we can win in conflict is unity. That's the only prize, unity. And it's a big one. But you know what? It's hot out there. It's hard. It's emotional right now. I, was, I took my grandkids on a date a couple of years back. And the little one was like three years old. And it was going great. We were pumpkin patched. And we went to McDonald's for breakfast and all the things only a grandparent gets to really do. And at the end, he had a full-scale grand mall meltdown. He was so, and I don't know why. It just happened. Like he was inhabited by, by another life force. And I'm trying to put him in the car. And he's like holding onto the side of the car. And I, could, I finally get him plunked in his car seat. And I look him in the eyes and I say, lovey, what do you need right now? And he thinks for a minute and he goes, nothing. <laughs> nothing. He had to just think about it for a second. And you find that in yourself sometimes. You're just worked up, worked up in this, in this conflict, in this disagreement. And then you start to ask, what would make this better? And usually the, what would make it better in an enemy where it's a, a, a situational enemy, somebody you want to be in agreement with, what would usually make it better is unity and peace. Even if peace requires the compromise of my own choices. Even if peace says in order to make peace, in order to bring shalom into the situation, in order for us to be tied together, to live in wholeness, we're going to both have to be willing to die to something. Peace. So is my goal peace or shalom? When we keep trying to make shalom, however, in a relationship that isn't going to work, in a relationship that is abusive or dangerous or toxic, in a relationship where, because this whole idea of making peace does not in any way, in any way suggest surrender all your boundaries. That's not what this is. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is possible here? In a relationship that is dangerous, abusive, any of those things, I, I can't make decisions for you, but I'm going to say that's not the three-legged race for you. 
Proverbs 14 says, escape quickly from the company of fools. They're a waste of your time, a waste of your words. The wisdom of the wise keeps life on track. The foolishness of fools lands them in the ditch. Be careful who you tie your life to. Paul is saying as much that in this scripture as he is saying keep peace. Second question, are there any ways I'm getting in the way of God working in my adversary's life? Are there any ways that I'm trying to manipulate the things, that I'm plotting my own revenge, that I'm stirring up stuff that I'm hoping will lead for things to go my way? Are there any ways that I'm trying to talk someone into agreeing with me at the expense of alienating them from the love of God? Is there, is there any way that I'm doing that? Be honest with yourself. Ask yourself the honest questions. And then, are there any ways I am cursing instead of blessing? With my words, with my words on electronic screens, with my attitude, in the way I talk about somebody to somebody else? Are there any ways that I am cursing someone instead of blessing them? Because regardless of the actions of your enemy, regardless of what they've done, regardless of how justified it is, Paul is telling us over and over again, Jesus told us over and over again, David told us over and over again, this will eat you alive. This will cost you your peace. Third question, fourth question, are there any ways I'm withholding compassion or good that is in my power to give. Is there, I mean, this is the def, I'm, and, and again, this is a tricky one with people who are your abject enemies, but I think in our life, we don't have really a lot of mortal enemies. We have a lot of situational enemies. We have a lot of them. And so situational enemies, the silent treatment thing, probably, probably not biblical. I'm withholding something to keep my own agenda alive, to keep my own self safe, always be willing <clears throat> to say I'm not going to, what, what I can give, I'm going to give. Within the boundaries that God has called me to, what I can give, I'm going to give. And then the one action that we do, we're required to do with every single enemy, with every single adversary, and it is a really hard one, bless. We're required to bless. How do you bless someone? The word bless means to confer or transfer a blessing. Not something that you're, you're stirring up inside yourself. You're not, create, you're not sowing a craft. You're not making something. You're transferring something. And so this is the way that I feel called to bless those who I feel are, are on the other side of my fence. You bless someone every time you sincerely ask for the mercy you have received from Jesus to be the same mercy they receive from Jesus. You don't have to make it up. You don't have to give them your own mercy, really. You just have to say, I want the mercy I've received to be the mercy they receive. You also bless them every time you, refers to, you refuse to curse them to someone else. There's an interesting note here, too, in this scripture because Paul misquotes Proverbs. And this is a funny thing because we know Paul and his credentials. He would have known this scripture well. But he says, um, if your enemy is hungry, feed him, all of that. And in Proverbs, it ends by saying, if your enemy is hungry, feed him because you'll heap coals of fire on his head, which kind of means you'll kill him with kindness. And then it says, and the Lord will reward you. But Paul skips that line. And instead, he says, 
If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think that Paul has just taken out of this the ability that we have to say, I'm going to do this because I'll get something back from it immediately. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this because maybe God will see and give me something cooler. And he's saying, no, the prize is not what comes to you. The prize is what happens in you. When you live subversive peace, peace that is counterculture, peace that goes against what everyone else is saying, fight for your rights, stand up for yourself, stake out your flag and guard your little field no matter what. When you're willing to say, I am going to make peace where it's possible and I am going to make shalom where it's required, and beyond that, I'm going to treat every enemy, everyone, the ones at work, the ones that feel absolutely aimed against me, the ones that show up when we're trying to decide where to go for dinner, the ones for me, I live in Bend sometimes, and the ones that are at the roundabouts because they never know how to drive on those things. They're my situational enemy. <laughs> Use your blinker. Um, <laughs> Any enemy, I decide I am going to bless and not curse. Don't take revenge. Don't withhold the good that's in my power to give because God is doing something in me and it matters. I have to believe that it matters. The, the way of Jesus being formed, wrestled into the icky parts of me is worth it. It's probably worth the enemy. It's probably why they're here. Because, you know, I've had the blessing of having some really amazing, close, heart friends with whom I am agreed. And I am richer for having them in my life. But I have grown more by having a handful of determined, noisy enemies than any other thing in my life. Any other thing? Shoot. <laughs> Will you stand with me? I want to pray with you. Jesus, I recognize that in this room, there are a million kinds of conflict. People have brought it into the room today. They've brought it into their lives. It's hard. And Lord, I ask that you would cause us to be people who are subversively, counterculturally, peace bringers. We are those who are able to speak and love and live in peace with our enemies. And I want, with your head still bowed, I want you just to take a minute, and we are going to practice it right now. We're going to let the Spirit of Jesus become alive in us, and I want you to pick one enemy. Maybe it's an enemy of our country. Maybe it's an enemy of your life or your family or your whatever. I want you to pick one enemy, and I want you to just whisper a prayer over that enemy. God, bless them with the mercy that you have given me. Jesus, thank you for your word. It stands when everything else fails. We love you. Amen. We like to end with a benediction. And if you would like to receive that, I'd love for you to put your hands out in front of you. May you be men and women who understand the way of Jesus while living in a world of conflict and chaos. May you be filled with the power and wisdom of the Holy Spirit to be those who make and keep and fight for peace. Amen. Have a great weekend. Yeah.